there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. So this week I'm gonna be talking about HSV types one and two and the overall approach to diagnosis, including the lab testing. So when it comes to HSV, it is incredibly common. So um, HSV one and HSV two, about statistics estimate about one in six patients have HSV-1, and about 1 in 20 people have HSV-2. It is a lifelong infection that hangs out inside of the trigeminal uh, ganglia or the sacral ganglia, depending on the site of infection. And in fact, um, HSV-1 has been thought of as the oral infection when it can affect either oral or genital locations. Same thing with HSV-2. And the reason I give those statistics and, and this other statistic, I tried to find as many as I could. Only interestingly, it's based on population studies, of course. So the data varies, right? But for the most part, it sounds like about only 20 to 25 patients with HSV-1 have ever had clinical symptoms. So it is very possible that somebody has that at lifelong infection, but they have never had symptoms and never will, which really ties into the testing and the patient counseling. Again, we'll circle back to that. So when it comes to the infection, it, it tends to occur, symptoms tend to occur about four days after exposure, anywhere from two to 12 days. And then the symptoms that patients will get really depends on a couple of things. It depends on the site of infection, whether it's oral or genital. It depends if it's a primary infection or a non-primary initial infection or recurrent. So primary infections refer to when patients have no have never been exposed to either HSV-1 or HSV-2. And those situations of being seronegative, going to having an infection the first time, either strain, are more likely going to have more severe signs and symptoms. To be clear though, not everybody has a severe presentation, even if it's a primary infection. So some patients will have subclinical symptoms, something very mild, or they might be completely asymptomatic and become a carrier. Like I said, with HSV-1, only 20 to 25% based on the studies that we have, have shown that those patients who have HSV-1 in their systems have ever had clinical symptoms, right? So non-primary infections refer to when somebody's been exposed, for example, to HSV-1, and then they become exposed to HSV-2, the symptoms tend to be a lot more mild because even though they're two different viruses, they have enough in common that that initial protection from HSV-1, HSV-2, vice versa, um, will allow that kind of next iteration of infection to be a lot more mild typically. So the most kind of severe primary uh, presentation when it comes to either oral or genital site, either HSV-1 or HSV-2, when it comes to the oral location, it actually in adults tends to present as a pharyngitis or as multiple oral lesions. And recurrent infections tend to be on the vermilion border, like right, um, like the, the typical cold sore of what people think about, it tends to be the recurrent infections and not the initial infection. And so the more severe initial primary infections can have things like malaise, headache, 
fever, cervical lymphadenopathy, tonsillar exudate, about 40% of people, I understand, uh, and as well as like some um, pharyngeal edema too. So it can be a pretty significant presentation that sounds a lot like strep or, or initial presentation of HIV. It, it sounds like a, a, quite a number of things. So it could potentially be the initial infection of either HSV1 or HSV2 just in the oral location. And so again, primary infection of either HSV1 or HSV2 in the genital location can be uh, really painful inguinal lymphadenopathy, again, malaise, fatigue, headache, bilateral ulcerations. It can be vesicles, a grouping of vesicles on an erythematous base, but again, not everybody presents that way. That's kind of the classic textbook presentation, and I don't really have stats on that in terms of how many people present in that way, but just know that it can be shades of, of that presentation, and it doesn't always have to be the exact one. And there's no real clear differentiation, clinically speaking, looking at the vesicles or ulcerations that go with HSV1 or HSV2, and most of the vesicles will progress to ulcerations that are exquisitely painful. And the duration of the infection tends to be longer and more severe with those primary infections versus the recurrent ones or the non-primary initial ones. Um, and the symptoms can last uh, for oral lesions can be about eight days or so of that exquisite pain. And then for, um, uh, for an initial genital infection can be to the range of about 19 days, it can, it can last a long time. But the recurrent infections tend to be a lot shorter, five to 10 days or so. So when it comes to recurrent infections, about 20 to 40% of patients, um, at least for, with HSV-1, can have recurrent uh, symptoms or recurrent outbreaks. I don't have great data on HSV-2, I just couldn't find that, so I'm imagining it's very similar. Um, notably, HSV-1 can be, um, uh, when it's a genital infection, can cause recurrences in the first year, but typically doesn't cause recurrences after that. So if you have a patient with recurrent genital vesicles, typically that's going to be HSV2. And the rate of how often patients get recurrences and how severe they are can typically be correlated back to their initial presentation of how severe and how long of a duration their initial infections were. And that is a little bit predictive. It's really important though, regardless, that we're letting patients know that it is likely majority of people, well, it's hard to say based on the statistics, but it's really important to counsel patients to expect a recurrence, except if it was in that case of HSV-1, generally speaking, might not recur after the first year. But generally speaking, it's important to advise that there are recurrences. Okay, so differential diagnosis and then approach to diagnosis. So differential diagnosis, the first two infectious ones are syphilis. That tends to occur as a painless, um, indurated ulcer though, it's very different from HSV, which is quite painful. And then chancroid, I, that's how I've heard it pronounced. You might pronounce it differently. Um, that can have a deep purulent um, ulcer um, with painful lymphadenopathy. So that sounds a little bit similar. So that's really important to keep in your differential. In terms of the um, non-infectious differential diagnoses, the top two ones are drug eruption as well as um, bichettes. So those are very uncommon, a lot more common to have HSV, but it's really important to keep those kind of top ones on your radar. Okay, when it comes to diagnosis, so like I said, it doesn't always commonly present as that textbook group of vesicles on an erythematous base. So it's really important to do um, testing. We can't, we officially cannot do a clinical diagnosis when it comes to HSV. And so the gold standard is actually to obtain via swab um, a PCR test 
and unroofing the vesicle so we can get to the epithelial cells, which is not a pleasant procedure for the patient. It is painful for the provider to have to do that, but that is the most accurate gold standard one. There's also the option of a viral culture that is kind of like second line to PCR. PCR can be a little bit expensive, so that's why sometimes we'll have a viral culture instead. A little bit more precise handling involved with that. And then below that are um, the Sanksmere, T-Z-A-N-C-K was what kind of used to be done, um, but PCR is really the gold standard now. So I'd recommend that you collaborate with your supervisor and your colleagues in your lab to see what the available options are and which specimens to obtain them with before you put a patient through that, just to clarify which test you're talking about and how to appropriately send it out so you don't have to do that to them again. Um, a huge question I get is about serology. So patients coming in asymptomatic would like to have serologic testing. So number one, it is not recommended for screening and that is supported by USPSTF. The reason for that, and you may have talked about this already, but it's pre-test probability. And so if you're testing people with a low pre-test probability, a low likelihood of having HSV, it can lead to a lot more false positives. False positives and false negatives. So they're just really not that helpful. There are certain cases where we would consider it. So one kind of one specific thing I want to say, there's IgM and there's IgG. Um, and like I said, there's the initial primary infection, the non-primary initial infection and recurrence. IgM is not helpful to distinguish between primary and infection and recurrent. And when it comes to IgG, if you have an initial infection with somebody who has a uh, positive IgG, it's not necessarily that helpful either. It's really important to get the PCR swab testing if we can. The most helpful situation is if you have somebody who has a partner with known HSV and they want to, the partner wants to know their status, you can send serology testing and it's most helpful if it's completely negative, right? Or if you have somebody who has a negative on file and your PCR by swab is positive now, it is most support, strongly supportive of an acute infection, right? But it's kind of getting into those like little numbers, but typically speaking, it's really not recommended. And I really also hearken back to what I said at the beginning of the video. If one in six people has HSV and only 20 to 25% of them have ever had symptoms, it's really not that helpful. And HSV is similar. I don't have the great stats on that, but it's a similar situation where one in 20 people have it and not everybody is symptomatic. Uh, so it's and it's not recommended for screening. So I just have a conversation with them of, you know, it's important to, to have safe sexual practices to prevent transmission because asymptomatic transmission between episodes, viral shedding is possible. I don't have great data on that either, but it's definitely, unfortunately, a possibility. So that's the overall approach to HSV diagnosis and testing. Please let me know what questions you have. If you haven't grabbed the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these videos sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and bonuses that I really just don't share anywhere else. Also, as always, if you're struggling with your lab interpretation, definitely check out the lab interpretation crash course at realworldnp.com labs, uh, the main labs in primary care. I'd love to help you out with that. That. Thank you so very much for watching. Hang in there and I'll see you soon. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review and tell all your NP friends. So together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. 
Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.